Last week being Easter, we naturally focused on the resurrection. This week we return to our regularly scheduled Isaiah, <laughs> chapter 22 to be specific. We're still in the burden section of Isaiah, chapters 13 through 23, but this morning's passage is noteworthy because unlike all the other burdens, chapter 13, the burden against Babylon, chapter 15, the burden against Moab, 17, the burden against Damascus, 19, the burden against Egypt, unlike all the other burdens, this is a burden against the Lord's people, a burden against the Lord's place. It begins chapter 22, verse 1, the burden against the valley of vision. And while valley of vision may sound vague enough to elude identification, what follows is unquestionably about Jerusalem, which is mentioned by name in verses 10 and 21. So it is indeed against the city and the people. Passage is divided into two distinct sections, 1 through 14 addressing the behavior of the people when Jerusalem was under siege, and 15 through 25 addressing two officials in the government by name. The first, Shebna, will be replaced by the second, Eliakim. So let's read Isaiah chapter 22. The burden against the valley of vision. What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops, you who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city? Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts. In the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain, Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate." He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, proceed to this steward, to Shabna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have sown a sepulcher here? As he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. 
Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Jacob. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Before we dive in, a more general note. As I said by way of introduction, and as you have certainly got a sense of by this time, Isaiah is hard to corral because it's about so much. It's sort of an intersection of everything in the Bible. If you think of biblical themes as strands in a web, Isaiah would be at or near the center of the web. For example, in this relatively obscure chapter, there are two distinct lines referenced in the New Testament. Did you happen to catch them? Let, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's verse 13, quoted in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-two. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And then verse 22, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulders, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. Referenced in the glorified Christ's self-description, Revelation 3, 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. And it's not like you hear that and go, wow, those two factoids make me feel closer to God. It's more the sense that there is something about everything in Isaiah. It's like the Bible's grand central station. Yet along with that, we have the difficulty of specifically understanding Isaiah, what the passage is about in and of itself. We've talked about this in terms of his style and challenges of translation. And in both portions of this chapter, uh, that difficulty is illustrated in different ways. The first section, verses 1 through 14, is clearly about a siege of Jerusalem. But which one? In Isaiah's day, the city was besieged by the Assyrian king Sennacherib in 701. It was miraculously spared when in one night the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36. 
<clears throat> we'll be talking about that at length as we proceed through the book. In 586, it was besieged and fell to the Babylonians. In 70 AD, it was besieged and fell to the Romans, and those are just the marquee sieges. There are others. <coughs> One would start from the assumption that Isaiah is referring to the 701 siege, which he personally experienced. But the problem is the passage clearly conveys the Lord's displeasure with the people, and that doesn't fit neatly with the other biblical material we have about that siege. Now, maybe it can be made to fit. Some people argue it that way, but others argue it fits better with 586 or elsewhere. Now, you may read a commentary that says it was the 701 siege, period, case closed. The problem is, I read that commentary and a dozen others. And I know they're actually arguing three or four positions, and I've got a pretty good sense of weighing evidence and reasoning, and I don't know which one he's talking about, or if perhaps even he's fusing them together. You may recall when we've talked about this problem before in Isaiah, I've said the key is to know what you know. I do not know which siege he's talking about, but I do know the problem he's talking about. He's clear enough on that. So when it comes to preaching, I can address the problem, though I'll do that without leaning too much on this or that particular siege for background. The principle he's talking about is very clear. The specific circumstances which gave rise to it are not. The other portion of the chapter is unusual in that he's dealing with individuals by name, his contemporaries, no doubt about it. Shebna is going to be replaced by Eliakim because Shebna's doing it wrong, and Eliakim will do it right. Simple enough. But here the problem is we have little information outside this text. The problem is stated here is that Shebna built himself a big fancy tomb. Okay, that's not a good thing. But we have to infer from that because we don't know what else he did or didn't do. I think we can infer reasonably from that. I'm just pointing out it's an inference. We don't have a record of the bad things he did or the good things he didn't do. All we know is that he built himself a big tomb. So getting practical, here's what we're going to do. We're going to survey the first portion, then address the practical point then survey the second portion and address the practical point, then we'll conclude by considering the significance of a title for God that is prominent in this passage. So, beginning with the first portion, Isaiah 22, verses 1 through 4. The burden against the valley of vision. What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops, you who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city? Your slain men are not slain with a sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. So the people are up on housetops making noise. Are they frightened by a besieging army or rejoicing at its departure? I don't know. The second part of verse 2 and verse 3 are difficult to square with the 701 siege. They seem to speak of a flight of leadership that would fit better with 586. In verse 4, the prophet speaks, refusing to be comforted. Then, verses 5 through 7. 
for it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountains. Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. The besieging army comes. The mention of Elam and Kerr in verse 6 fits better with the Assyrians in 701 than the Babylonians in 586. Now in verses 8 through 11, we get practical. The people seeking deliverance through weapons, walls, and water. Verse 8, he removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. So the people are making practical preparations for the siege. They've got weapons in the house of the forest. That was an impressive wooden structure built by Solomon, 1 Kings 7-2, which apparently at this time was serving as an armory. They're repairing the walls and shoring up the water supply, all perfectly common-sense preparations for a siege. But according to Isaiah, all this was done without trust in God. Verse 11, You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. Okay, so they were acting in the flesh without trusting God. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They're trusted in the chariots and trusted in the horses. It can all be done without trusting God. However... It can also all be done while trusting God. There's that marvelous balance we see in Nehemiah where they're rebuilding the wall, chapter 4, verse 9. We prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. They didn't pray and not post a guard. They didn't post a guard and not pray. They prayed and posted a guard. Both together, no conflict. Now, they probably prayed first, didn't post a guard and then go, oh, somebody toss up a prayer. But the practical preparation by itself did not mean that they were not trusting God. In fact, failure to practically prepare drifts you into the territory of testing God, as in you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the problem is, the situation Isaiah is talking about has the people preparing for a siege, but not trusting God. Yet, here's the biblical description from 2 Chronicles 32 of the preparations they made in 701, beginning at verse 2. And when King Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs, which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? 
and he strengthened himself, built up all the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers, and built another wall outside, also repaired the Milo in the city of David, and made weapons and shields in abundance. Weapons, walls, and water, as practical as you can get. But reading on. Then he set military captains over the people, <coughs> gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Frankly, that sounds pretty darn good to me. Up to this point in Isaiah, Assyria has absolutely steamrolled everybody. And godly King Isaiah is rousing the people of Jerusalem to trust that somehow Jerusalem is going to stop the Assyrian horde because the Lord God of hosts will fight for them. Now they were, in fact, delivered by a miracle an action which I would rank among the top ten miracles in the Bible. One angel, one night, 185,000 dead Assyrians. That's got to be on the short list of major miracles. So, in relation to the passage about a siege of Jerusalem, I have dug into it, and I'm still not sure which siege it is, but I am sure about the lesson, the point. Verse 8, he, the Lord, removed the protection of Judah, and their first impulse was not to seek him, not to ask why, but rather to handle it themselves with weapons, walls, and water. It's rather like Genesis 3, eat fruit, open eyes, discover naked. We do not want to get God involved in this. We can fix this ourselves with fig leaves. There, we've got it covered. Acknowledging that this is our human impulse and acknowledging that practical steps aren't wrong in and of themselves, only wrong when we pursue them without first seeking God, how do we avoid this mistake? How can we be sure we are seeking him, his kingdom, first? Seems like it'd be nice if there were a set formula, a simple sort of checklist but then, human nature being what it is, we'd come to rely on the list rather than the Lord. Those are the weeds the Pharisees got lost in. I have been married going on 35 years. And I have yet to master the art of interacting with my wife. The thing that keeps tripping me up is she's a person. It's dynamic can't reduce it to a list or a formula. And so it seems to me our relationship with God is similar in that regard. Keep growing in recognition of the person. They'll take it from there. Second section, beginning at verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, proceed to the steward to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high? 
who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Well, obviously Shebna is on the way out. And, as we've already mentioned, the problem is he has hewn himself a sepulcher on high, has carved into rock at some point of elevation. Usually these things would be on the ground. But this is up high, so everybody can see he has prepared for himself an ornate tomb. And I don't think we have to dig too deep to understand the motivation. He wants to be recognized, to be honored, to be valued, even after death. And if that's the case, it's not hard to imagine how he wants to be treated in life. How he desires, we should probably say insists, that those around him recognize and appropriately respond to his elevated status. Now, we don't have a lot of time here, so I'm cutting to the chase. You probably know about Jesus' disciples James and John, how they requested through their mother that one be able to sit at his right hand and the other at his left in his kingdom. Then the other ten heard about it and they got upset, so Jesus gathered them all together and said, Matthew 20, beginning at verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So there's the full biblical inversion. You want to be great? Be the servant. You want to be first? Be the slave. James and John had not arrived yet, and neither had Shebna. He wanted to be great, he wanted to be first, but he equated that with exercising authority over people, lording it over them. Not only in life, but carrying on into death, hewing a magnificent sepulcher so generations yet unborn could appreciate his greatness. I don't know how much of this is nature and how much is nurture, But it seems to me there are two sorts of people. Those who care what people think of them after they're dead, and those who don't. I am most definitely in the second category. Permit me to explain. I care immensely, intensely, what my children and grandchildren will think of me. I care immensely what people who know me think of me. But I could not care less what someone who never knew me, either in my generation or in a succeeding generation, thinks of me. The only message I would have for them is that classic tombstone couplet. You see it phrased differently. I'm fine if you put it on my tombstone this way. Beware, reader, as you pass by. As you now are, so once was I. As I now am, so you shall be. Therefore, prepare to follow me. (laughs) Got to say one more thing to be entirely clear. I care immensely, intensely, what they think of me in heaven. 
the angel armies, the cloud of witnesses. That's the audience I'm playing to. And of course, there is the ultimate audience from whom I long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That is Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one, and that is the only thing I want to care about. The longer I spend on earth, the more I'm inclined to suspect there's something like a completely inverse ratio between earthly praise and heavenly praise. Brothers and sisters, do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. Now, in contrast to Shebna, there will be Eliakim, verses 20 to 25. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity, from the cups to all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and will be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Relatively little is said about Eliakim's behavior. I think the most telling line is verse 21, he shall be as a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Father in the fullest and best sense of nurturing, protecting, guiding, all the things Shebna should have been, but was not. Now there's a basic image here I want to highlight right after I say a word about the last verse, 25. Eliakim is likened to a peg firmly set on a wall. Verse 23, I will fasten him as a peg to a secure place. And the point is, you can hang things on it. You can count on it. It's dependable. Verse 24, they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity, from the cups to all the pitchers. Yet, in the last verse, 25, we have the peg that was fastened in the secure place being removed, cut down and falling. So what's up with that? It seems the last verse is either picturing Shebna as a previous peg that was removed, or is speaking of Eliakim's descendants, who will not be as reliable as he is. But the image I want to leave you with is the contrast between Eliakim and Shebna, Eliakim the peg, and Shebna the ball. Eliakim is fixed and sturdy. You can depend on him. Depend being a metaphorical word. It means literally to hang down from. You can count on that point being fixed. He's not going to drop you. But Shebna is a ball, unattached, rolling. 
In fact, he's going to get thrown away and roll into a foreign country and die there, verses 17 and 18. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die. And frankly, those contrasting images are about the best lesson we can draw from Eliakim and Shebna. Because, as I said, there's little information outside this passage. So, are you like a peg, fixed and dependable? Or are you like a ball, unattached and rolling? Bonus points here. This is the only mention of a ball in all of Scripture. Now, I'm a Bible wonk, so I notice things like this. But I found that amazing when you think of you know how common balls are in all ex- in our experience to realize there is only one mentioned in the Bible and that not favorably. It's in contrast to the dependability of a peg. Now that may not strike you as particularly important, but I would be willing to bet that for the rest of your life you'll remember Eliakim and Shebna as the peg and the ball. And whenever you think about one, you'll think of the other, recalling how God wants you to be sturdy and dependable rather than rolling around. Now, in closing, I want to focus our attention on a particular name or title for God. It's one you may be familiar with, but we focus on it because it's very prominent in this passage. The more familiar form is the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, And it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts. Verse 25, In that day, says the Lord of hosts. The title, the Lord of hosts, is the more familiar form. It occurs 236 times in the Old Testament, 53 times in Isaiah, and twice in this chapter. But there is a similar title, which is rarer, the Lord God of hosts. That occurs 27 times in the Old Testament, 8 in Isaiah, but 4 times in this chapter. As in verse 5, for it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts. It's also found in verses 12, 14, and 15. Actually, both titles occur in verse 14. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, Surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. And I need to specify that's the way formal, literal translations read. These would include the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, and the ESV. I will talk about other translations in a moment. But the difference in those titles is, in the Lord of Hosts, you can see the word Lord is capitalized. That indicates it's the divine name, usually pronounced Yahweh. Tzavot is the Hebrew word translated hosts. So in Hebrew, it's Yahweh Tzavot, in English, the Lord of Hosts. But in the phrase, the Lord God of Hosts, You'll see, again, we're talking about those literal translations I mentioned, that Lord is in lowercase and God is capitalized. What that means is the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai, that occurs in that phrase. 
the divine name, Yahweh, is also there, but it's translated God in caps rather than Lord because the actual Hebrew word for Lord is there. Then Tzavot, which is translated hosts. So the Hebrew phrase Yahweh Tzavot is translated the Lord of hosts with Lord in caps. And the Hebrew phrase Adonai Yahweh Tzavot is translated the Lord of hosts, the Lord God of hosts with God in caps. I'm going to wrap up by talking a bit more about translations. The New International Version, NIV, elected to translate all those phrases as simply the Lord Almighty. If you've got the NIV, that's what you're seeing there. And I'm not going to take the time to go into why they did that. But frankly, I think it's missing something important. Namely, who are the hosts that he is the Lord and the Lord God of. The Hebrew word savot means a mass, a big group, and it's used primarily in military contexts of armies. When joined with the Lord, the primary reference is the armies of heaven, the heavenly host as an army. The New Living Translation translates these these phrases as the Lord of Heaven's armies. And I think that's quite good, because that's what it is talking about. Eugene Peterson's biblical paraphrase, The Message, which is something I would advise reading with great caution. However, at this point, for these phrases, he translates, The God of Angel Armies. And again, I like that. It conveys the power, the oomph, in that phrase, because there is a host of heaven. There is an angelic army, and the Lord is the Lord of them. And if we're on his side, that means they're on our side. And I like that. I like that a lot. And Isaiah does too, which is why he keeps reminding us of it and stating it in this passage. Well, we have covered a lot of ground in Isaiah 22, and I asked Dan if we could conclude by singing about that God of angel armies. So let's do that.